Welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast, based on the Morning Report series from Elsevier. This podcast has been adapted for audio in collaboration with series editor Dr. Raj Dasgupta and the volume editors of each book. Each episode features an in-depth case dissection format and aims to deliver practical, concise, and easy-to-digest information. And now, here's today's episode. Hi, Dr. Raj back again. And for those of you who uh, just finished watching or listening to the other sections, we talked about the hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So go check them out. But right now, I want to press my forward button and talk about diabetes. You know, they're going to ask those on the board exam. So let's talk about this. 48-year-old man is seen in routine follow-up for his type 2 diabetes. He was diagnosed uh, seven years ago. He does not have any diabetic-related complications. What are those complications? They could be macrovascular. It could be stroke. It could be heart attack. It could be peripheral arterial disease. It could be microvascular. What does that mean? We have neuropathy, nephropathy. And you know what always worries me about the most in diabetics? It's right here. Look at my eye. It's the eye. You worry about diabetic retinopathy and all these other complications. So good for him that he doesn't have any of those complications. So what is his regimen? He's taking insulin uh, detamir. Uh, which is more of the uh, long-acting insulin. You know, uh, he takes prandial, that means around mealtime, insulin Lispro, which is a more rapid-acting. And of course, you say type 2 diabetes, what's my go-to oral drug? It's got to be metformin. So, all right, his hemoglobin A1C has decreased to 7.4. I mean, that's not that bad. His fasting and preprandial blood glucose have ranged from 110 to 130. Those are pretty awesome. Okay. And he has no hypoglycemic um, episodes or nor has he noticed anything. Medical history is significant for obesity. Well, we all have to work on that a little bit. He wishes to reduce his A1C to below seven, but he's reluctant to add another injectable medication to his regimen. That's going to be important. So no injectables. Um, On exam, uh, vitals are within normal limits. His BMI is obese, 33. And the remainder of the physical exam is um, unremarkable. Which of the following is the most appropriate management of this patient's diabetes? So we got A, add something called, now these names, everyone are so tongue twister, uh, liraglutinide, uh, glutid, I've uh, let's just call it the brand name. It's Victoza. Um, does everyone know what that is? Now, that's going to be important, right? Because this is where the questions go with these new types of drugs. And this is going to be a uh, GLP-1 agonist. So that's uh, glucagon-like peptidase 1 agonist. So, okay, Victoza, brand name. Um, B, continue the current regimen, which is do nothing, even though he wants to lower his A1C. Uh, C, increase the insulin ditramir, which is the long-acting, so increase the long-acting, all right? Uh, D, measure his postprandial blood glucose, or E, add exenatide, which goes by the brand name Bayetta. So already, I mean... This is a good question because it really combines a lot of clinical knowledge with some of the basic science. So our friend does not want to inject. So if you don't want to inject, I got to tell you, half these answers are going to be taken off <laughs> right off the bat. I mean, Victoza is injectable, Bayetta is injectable, so A and E are gone. Insulin, last I checked, is injectable. <laughs> so that's going to be C is gone. So it really comes down to 
continue your current regimen, but he wants to get better and he has room to get better. So by test taking skills, I kind of would pick D, but D is a great answer for one reason. I mean, they're giving you reassurance that he's checking his what? His fasting. So everyone out there, when you check your uh, your blood glucose in most patients, if you're a diabetic, it's the morning because every time you check in the morning, I assume you're fasted because you didn't eat at nighttime, I think. So you know that his fasting is good. His pre-meal glucoses are good. So the only way the blood sugars can be out of control, if you already have this reassurance he's good in the morning and good before meals, is his postprandial. So what do you do? You want to check those. And it really would change what you do. So, um, and you wouldn't actually have to inject more. I mean, what would you do is actually just, you know, increase the dose of that. So I guess C could still be on, on that because C was, you know, increasing what he's taking already. You won't give another injection, but the long acting wouldn't be the answer. If you got that good fasting and preprandial, you really want to think about that short acting in the postprandial. So the answer is going to be what? Diaz and dog. But, you know, all this talking about glucose monitoring and measuring this is going to be such an important part of the boards and just practicality. So let's talk about self-monitoring of blood glucose. So everything I just talked about is here in this slide over here, you know, talking about why is the answer going to be D because we had that reassurance the preprandial was good. We had that reassurance that the fasting was good. And I really want to talk about how do we get, uh, how do we do this glucose monitoring over here? So first question is, who should do self-monitoring their blood glucose and why? So in the olden days, you know what we used to say? Well, everyone. I mean, if you're a diabetic, get these little monitors and stick your finger as much as you want. And we need to get those answers. And, you know, that was the, the old mentality. But, you know, nowadays to get questions correct on the boards and to make sure your patients like you, we really only do it for patients who are at risk for what? hypoglycemia, low blood glucose, because, you know, can having high blood sugars kill you? Not really. But if you have a low blood glucose, can you die? And the answer is, yeah. And it's, it's really scary. I mean, signs of hypoglycemia could be diaphoresis, mental status changes, I mean, coma. It's really scary. So what does that tell me is that, well, what categories of drugs put you at a high risk for getting hypoglycemia? Well, Number one, insulin. You give some insulin, you're going to drop that blood sugar. So, of course, if you're on insulin, we definitely need to monitor. And the other category of drug that really puts you at risk for hypoglycemia is one of the classic oral hypoglycemics known as sulfonylureas. And people are going to ask me, but Dr. Raj, what about this category of drugs called the incretins? these GLP-1 receptor agonists, these DPP-4 inhibitors. I mean, we're talking brand names by Yetta, Victoza. When we talk about GLP-1 receptor agonists for these DPP-4 inhibitors, which are oral, things like Genuvia. Now, the key thing is, is that when we talk about insulin regulation, so I put this over here in this slide down here on the bottom right. Yeah, I'm sorry. That's that, that, that's a USMLE step one basic science slide. And, you know, it's all about integrating. So this is when we talk about the pancreas, you know, you have your islets of Langerhand. They have different cells there. You know, you have your, your alpha cells, your beta cells, your delta cells. And when we talk about insulin release, we're talking about the beta cell itself. And what really is going to regulate insulin releases is, is glucose. So when we talk about the release of insulin, when we talk about medications, they can do it in one of two ways. They could do it in a glucose dependent fashion, which means that 
If glucose levels high, you want to secrete more insulin. If glucose levels are low, you want to stop insulin secretion, or you could do it in independent fashion, which is not a good idea, meaning that you'll just release insulin regardless of what the glucose is, and that really can cause hypoglycemia. So this uh, diagram down here on the right shows that, you know, what happens when you have high glucose, it enters the beta cell. What does it make it do? It closes potassium channels because most of the potassium is going to be what? Intracellular. So if you, potassium, which is a positive charge, can't leave the cell, it causes the resting membrane to become more positive, meaning that it wants to depolarize. Also, at the same time, what happens to these calcium channels? They open because most of the calcium is going to be what? Extracellular. So when you open the channel, more of the calcium will come down into the cell. So once again, it's going to make their resting membrane potential, which is intracellular, more positive. So it wants to depolarize. So what happens once again? Potassium channels what? Close. Calcium channels open. The resting membrane potential becomes more positive. It depolarizes. And what do you release? Insulin. And this could happen in a glucose-dependent fashion or independent. So when we talk about these incretins, like these GLP-1 receptor agonists, these DPP-4 inhibitors, they do it in a glucose-dependent fashion, which means that if blood glucose is going to be low, then they're not going to continue releasing insulin, which is why these medications by itself don't cause what? Hypoglycemia. But these classic drugs they're called the sulfonylureas, like gliburide, glipicide. You know, brand names are Amaryl, Micronase. They release glucose in an independent fashion. So even blood glucose is low, they're still popping out insulin. That's scary. So they're at very, very high risk of hypoglycemia just by themselves. So when you do self-glucose monitoring, when you're on drugs that put you at risk for hypoglycemia, think about insulin, think about the sulfonylureas. The question becomes now, okay, Dr. Raj, but why not just everyone with diabetes, you know? So when we talk about type 2 diabetes, which is the most common, and I already mentioned that, you know, my go-to drug for type 2 diabetes is always going to be metformin. Why can't, you know, we just put someone on metformin on a glucose monitor to check the blood glucose? And you know what, everyone who's listening today, I mean, that's a lot of people. I'm sure, you know, it's almost like, oh, you're a diabetic and here's your prescription for your glucose monitor. And the answer is, it's not wrong to check blood glucose. I mean, you're not a bad doctor or a bad person if you're sticking your finger, which, by the way, hurts sometimes, you know. But what are you adding? What are you adding to that patient care? And I always say to myself that, you know, if a patient sticks himself in the finger every morning and it makes them feel good about themselves, it gives them positive reinforcement, meaning that, you know what, my sugar is good. I'm going to go exercise. I'm jumping on my Peloton bike. I'm going to do a little elliptical in the morning. Well, hey, that's great. I'll continue monitoring them. But truth be told that, you know, many people do it because they were told to. Does that sound familiar? You just do it because the doctor told you to. And maybe that time sticking your finger 365 times a year could be better exercising or just doing something else. So what is my bottom line point over here? When we talk about self-glucose monitoring, if you're a type 1 diabetic, dude, the thought process is more blood glucose checking, the better. The more you want to monitor, the better. But in type 2 diabetics, especially those on metformin or these incretins by itself, it may be overused. So here's the question people are asking. So what should be the frequency 
a blood sugar testing with a finger stick in his glove and his glucose meter. Well, let me just kind of play off my last statement. If you're a type one diabetic, you know, these are diabetes because you most likely have an autoimmune disease, these antibodies against insulin. Hey, opening line here is more the barrier, more the better, you know, but people are like, I don't like that answer, Dr. Raj, how many times? So <laughs> the rule is, is that as many times as you inject yourself, you should check your blood glucose. That's my answer for my, my patients. That's my answer for the board exams. For a type two diabetic, the only time I really will recommend, you know, blood glucose monitoring are those at risk for hypoglycemia. Therefore, if they're on a saphonia So if you're on a saphonia I would say doing it once a day. And when do I like to check? Kind of like the morning, right? You know why? It's a fasting because you didn't eat at night. Now, are type two diabetics on insulin? The answer is uh, yes. It's very common, unfortunately. You know, and the rule is that if we're doing a good job with your type two diabetes, hopefully you won't get to insulin, but people are. And if you're on insulin, then go refer to my previous statement. As many times as you inject, you should also check the blood glucose. So what motivated me to give you this talk today? Well, continuous glucose monitoring, it's, I mean, it's all over the TV. I mean, I put some, some pictures on here. If you ever get a chance to actually see my PowerPoint, if you're listening to this, one of my podcasts, there's stuff called the Freestyle Libre. You know, there's so many ones out there and it's a big thing that you don't have to stick your finger anymore. You could place something on your arm, on your abdomen, and it tells you what your glucose is constantly. It's called continuous glucose monitoring. So is this technology, which I got to tell you, everyone, it's not cheap. Is it beneficial? You know what I mean? The answer is right here. I put three bullet points. Number one, it's very beneficial. If you're a type one, I mean, I'm definitely on board. Or if you're a type two, using insulin more than once a day. So if you're taking a long acting like Atlantis once in the morning, I don't think so. But if you are type two using insulin multiple times a day, definitely you're going to have benefit from this. So what are the advantages? I got to tell you, I, I love analogies to help remember things and not memorize. So if you have continuous glucose monitoring, imagine like driving a car, but when you're driving, your windshield is blacked out. So you can't see where you're driving and you only can see where you're driving every 10 minutes. I mean, that's pretty scary. You don't know where you're going. You're just driving blind. That's the analogy. If you could, you know, check your glucose as much as you want, think about you can see through the windshield, you know, if you're driving into hypoglycemic land, you know what to do, where to steer away. But if you're only checking it once a day, you're driving blind. And that's what we worry about in people who are type 1 diabetics or type 2s using insulin all the time. So all the advantages of this continuous glucose monitoring is really for people to avoid hypoglycemia. And the two main categories of these devices are, number one, it's called intermittent, otherwise known as flash continuous glucose monitoring. The classic example is the Freestyle Libre. And what does it do is that it measures interstitial fluid glucose. So you put it in your arm, on your abdomen, you're not measuring the venous glucose or a capillary glucose, it's the interstitial fluid. And what happens is, is that once you put the monitor there, you can take like a cell phone and you just put it on it like this and it tells you what the glucose is. But the thing is, even though it's constantly monitoring it, you need to check it to see what the number is, hence the word intermittent. Um, the other one is called real time. And the classic example, something called the Dexcom G6. <laughs> um, the results are sent to the user every five minutes, whether you like it or not, kind of like sent to your cell phone. So you're always getting values 
and it could be overwhelming, you know, and if the glucose is too high or more importantly, too low, it sets off an alarm. So of course, it's someone always watching your back. So these are the two major categories. And you know what? When we talk about continuous glucose monitoring, it there are studies that show it does improve the hemoglobin A1C. So you definitely can get some A1C improvement. And under disadvantages, of course, I put right here, cost, that they are definitely not cheap. With that being said, during the question I gave you, we're talking about these uh, GLP-1 agonists. So I don't know if anyone out there watches TV and you really, I really, you focus and study, but you know, these medical commercials, everyone, they are kind of helpful because it motivates you to know what are you talking about? And they do give you the accurate side effects. So has anyone seen commercials about Ozempic? And I got to tell you, I don't embarrass myself, but I know I was watching one last night and they have like a little singing commercial Ozempic. And I'm like, oh my God. So why are there so many commercials and why do they all look with this very obnoxious face of the people in the commercial? Once again, they're all, it is a GLP-1 receptor agonist that's glucagon-like peptidase 1, which is part of what we call incretins. Incretins are intestinal hormones and glucagon-like peptidase 1 uh, goes to its target organ, which is the pancreas. And what does it do in the pancreas? It secretes insulin in a glucose-dependent fashion, and it inhibits the release of glucagon. Because of course, in glucagon, what does it do? It increases blood glucose. So when we talk about the boards and your patients, I mean, there are many, many competitors out there when we talk about these GLP-1 receptor agonists. The first one that came out was someone was a drug called Exenertide, goes by the brand name Bietta. This is injectable and you give it twice a day. It's not very, it's not commonly used and not really the correct answer on the board exam. Another type is called Liraglutid, goes by the brand name Victoza. And it's very similar to Bietta, except it's once daily injection. But what makes it unique and why I put that in the vignette we just talked about is that it got FDA approval for weight loss in non-diabetic patients. But when it's used for weight loss, it doesn't go by the brand name Victoza. It goes by the brand name Sexenda. So same drug, just different name. Remember that patient in the vignette wanted to lose weight? That would have been maybe an option, but the patient didn't want to what? Add any injectables. So Victoza, something to still kind of keep in the back of your mind. So Exenertide, which initially was Bietta, which was what, twice daily injections, they reformulated a little bit and came up with an extended release drug, goes by the brand name Bidurant. And you could inject that what? Once weekly. And there are patients right now who see endocrinologists that use once weekly bidurin. But the story doesn't end there. Where does the story actually begin is that there are two other drugs. Uh, one generic name is Dulaglutid, goes by the brand name Trulicity. I'm sure many of you heard Trulicity on commercials. And the other one is Semaglutinid, which goes by the brand name Ozempic. Bidurin, Trulicity, and Ozempic are all once weekly injection GLP-1 receptor agonist. And there's a huge fight right now to see which one's going to be the best. So Trulicity recently got FDA approval to have a higher dose of its drug based upon a trial called the AWARD-11 trial. And it showed that it had really good A1C reduction and weight loss. So this is really up-to-date knowledge about this AWARD-11 trial and getting this FDA approval for a higher dose of the medication that caused better A1C reduction in weight loss. 
But Ozempic, prior to this trial being approved for trulicity, was once weekly. It had the best A1C reduction and A1C control and weight loss compared to Bidurin, which I mentioned, and Trulicity, but that was Trulicity at the lower dosing. So I'm sure when Ozempic hears about this new trial and the higher dosing of Trulicity, they're not going to be happy campers. But what makes semaglutinid Ozempic very popular is that Ozempic has an oral form of the drug. That's right. All the things I mentioned already were injectable. So now we finally have an oral GLP-1 agonist. And of course, it goes by a different brand name. It's called Rebellus. So be the rebel, you know? And this is taken orally, but I got to tell you, you thought it would take off. You thought it would. But, you know, when you talk to certain patients, I know that, you know, people always think, I don't want to inject. But if you have to take a drug every single day and you may forget taking it. And when you take this drug, uh, Rebellus, you have to be very careful when you take the medication, what you take the medication is, is it going to be absorbed? All these different things. Some people will be just like, you know what, let me just inject once a week and call it a day instead of having to deal with this all the time. So it really didn't take off. But for board exam purposes, the fact that there is one GLP-1 you know, receptor agonist that has both an injectable and an oral form, that definitely is going to be high yield for the board exams. And not to forget that when we talk about GLP-1 receptor agonists, please remember side effects. They can cause things like pancreatitis. And of course, when we talk about tumors, you know, there's something that's very rare called medullary carcinoma of the thyroid. And it's not a common thing that happens, but, you know, you always see it in the commercials that it's something you worry about. And you don't want to give these GLP-1 receptor agonists to people with men's syndrome because of that. So I wanted to mention that. And this is why we see so many commercials. You know, before we say goodbye to diabetes, I, want, I thought this was very important. You know, how do we diagnose it? It's always asked about, and people always ask me, Dr. Raj, is there such a thing as prediabetes? And the answer is, yeah. I mean, is there any FDA-approved drugs for prediabetes? Not really. Of course, you know, the answer is always going to be lifestyle modifications. And, you know, when we talk about prediabetes objectively, we think about it if we have a fasting, you know, blood sugar that's going to be, you know, between 100 and 125, a two-hour postprandial uh, oral glucose tolerance test that has values between 140 and 199, or an A1C between 5.7 and 6.4. This is when we start thinking about prediabetes. I know many people out there is like, my doctor put me on metformin, and that's not wrong. But, you know, that's something that's going to be, you know, patient by patient. But the classic diagnosis of diabetes is going to be four things. Number one, a fasting blood glucose greater than 126. That's why we always check it in the morning. You know, one that many people do not order is going to be an oral glucose tolerance test. And when we do it for screening for diabetes, it's going to be greater than 200. We check that, you know, two hours after you drink this nasty sugar drink. But anytime you talk about oral glucose tolerance testing, many people just talk about what? GDM, gestational diabetes. And that's totally the test to use for GDM. But for adults, when making the diagnosis, we don't usually use the oral glucose tolerance test. And that value greater than 200 uh, after two hours is usually the cutoff. And a very important thing is the hemoglobin A1C. And if you have a value greater than 6.5, that's going to be diagnosed as diabetes. And the last thing is the random blood glucose greater than 200 but it's not just random blood glucose greater than 200, you know, it's also with symptoms of hyperglycemia. And why is that important is because if you just stick anyone in the finger, maybe they're stressed, maybe they're taking steroids. So to really kind of 
niche that value towards diabetes, you got to have hyperglycemic symptoms. And everyone's going to ask me, what are those symptoms of diabetes? So you always think about my P's, polyuria, polydipsia, polyphagia. I'm thirsty, I'm hungry, and I urinate a lot. So if you have these symptoms plus a random greater than 200, then you can think about diagnosing diabetes. So it's always important to think about that diagnostic criteria. I'm going to break this up a little bit because that that sounds like I just made a great podcast right there. Thank you for listening to the Beyond the Pearls podcast from Inside the Boards. This podcast is executive produced by Christopher Brightigan and Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is for educational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice. Ars longa, vita brevis.